Hello and welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 3, Expulsion. In the bitter cold of early January, a crowd of cheering supporters surrounded William Lyon Mackenzie, the man who was fast becoming a symbol of political reform in Upper Canada. It was January 2nd, 1832, and it might have been the best day of his life. Only a few weeks earlier, his opponents in the Legislative Assembly had ousted him from their midst. They were offended by, well, a lot of what Mackenzie did, but especially about what he printed in his newspaper, The Colonial Advocate. And so they selected one passage that seemed especially offensive, where he had talked about Parliament as, quote, a psychophantic office for registering the decrees of as mean and mercenary an executive as ever was given as punishment for the sins of any part of North America. His colleagues uh, did not take kindly to being described as some kind of ornery, heavenly punishment on the people. They claimed that his gross, scandalous, and malicious libel, as they put it, had been intended and calculated to bring the House and government into contempt. By publishing these abusive comments, they argued that Mackenzie had breached the privileges of the House but Mackenzie refused to retract what he had written. In fact, what they called libel, he saw as solemn truth. His enemies in the assembly called him a reptile and a spaniel dog, and then, because they controlled a majority in the assembly, they expelled him. Needless to say, William Lyon Mackenzie disagreed with their assessment and his expulsion, and he ran again in the new election to fill the now empty seat. Here he was on this January day, surrounded by supporters, and it was looking good. When the vote stood at 119 for Mackenzie and only one against, his opponent decided that nothing could be done and he conceded defeat. Mackenzie was going back to the assembly. The crowd cheered and gleefully hoisted him up onto a carriage and paraded him through the city. William Lyon Mackenzie, fiery orator and symbol of reform, had won. But if he thought his ordeal was over, he was decidedly wrong. Last week, we examined the entrails of a deadly election ride in Montreal to see what they could tell us about the growing rebelliousness of certain elements in Lower Canada in the 1830s. This week, we turn to Upper Canada. Here too, in the upriver colony, political divisions were hardening and violence lurked at the edges of polite society. Reformers demanded change, while loyalists claimed that these same reformers were merely disloyal demagogues who needed to be put back in their place. The rebellion of 1837 was still half a decade in the future, but a close observer could already spy the battle lines being drawn. If you want to shoot something, it certainly helps to have a big, fat target. For William Lyon Mackenzie, the target was the family compact, the ruling oligarchy who monopolized positions of power within the colony. Its critics came to call it the family compact, but this is slightly misleading because by no means were all of its members related. Still, the nepotistic flavor of the term was irresistible and it had stuck. The family compact were that group of leading citizens favored by the governor, chosen to sit in the Legislative Council and often the Executive Council. They were the judges, commissioners of lands, and administrators of this young colony. 
their positions came with salaries, lands, and taxing powers. Indeed, for some, much of the money they made working in government came directly from charges they levied on upper Canadians. In other words, these were just the kinds of patronage positions sure to, well, what's the polite way of putting this, rile their opponents, maybe. In moving upriver to Upper Canada this week, we're entering a world that both was and was not at all like Lower Canada. Some of the concerns will sound familiar. The family compact was the local version of the Chateau clique, the officials that also staffed the executive and legislative councils in Lower Canada, and which also generated resentment. But in other ways, we're in a new territory. The French-English divide is almost totally absent, of course. Upper Canada was a new colony, a home ostensibly for loyalists, those who fled the American Revolution. Except, of course, that nothing was quite so simple. Back in the 1780s and 1790s, the colony's first governor concocted a grand vision of Upper Canada as a model British colony, huddled right next to the Americans. A constant reminder of the good government that Americans could have enjoyed if only they had not so foolishly rebelled. As we talked about last week with Lower Canada, there was to be a balanced constitution, but one which kept democracy in check. Yes, there would be an elected assembly, but there would also be a governor representing the monarch and imperial government, and there would be a legislative council representing what were seen as the colony's better elements. In order to help create this aristocratic touch, the early governors favored certain leading settlers, including retired military officers, providing them with large tracts of land, much larger than for regular settlers. That all of this could go wrong and stir up resentment from others who saw the allegedly better elements as no better than themselves is, of course, exactly what happened. If we look at just one example, you can see how the initial vision of loyalist British Upper Canada didn't quite work out as planned. Let's take religion to see how it worked there, or rather, how it didn't work. Remember, England had, and has, a state religion, the Anglican Church. Even though many of the early loyalists and many more of the American settlers who showed up in the colony's early years were not Anglicans, the governor and the executive overlooked this inconvenient fact and insisted on giving special support for the Church of England. The church, they hoped, would serve as a bastion of authority and religiously inspired deference. So they wrote into the colony's constitution a stipulation that each tract of land opened up for settlement would contain special reserves, some for the crown and others for the clergy, but only the Church of England. The profits earned from the sale of these land grants were meant to fund both the state and the church in the years to come. Needless to say, not everyone was pleased, and as the years passed, resentment built up about these reserved lands, called clergy reserves. For some settlers, it was just impractical. They resented that the reserves blocked settlement, taking up lands that might be adjacent to their own and which they couldn't buy either for themselves or their children. Others, especially members of other denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, they felt aggrieved at the support for one denomination over another. The Church of Scotland argued that they should get a share of the clergy reserves because, after all, they were the state church in Scotland. Other denominations also claimed that they should have a share. Still other critics, more radical, like William Lyon Mackenzie, believed that the reserves should be entirely secularized and no denomination should benefit from them. 
In other words, the idea of the clergy reserves, this idea that was supposed to bolster traditional authority in Upper Canada, instead became a leading cause of acrimony and a reason to criticize the colony's establishment. So although Upper Canada did not have the same ethnic and religious divisions that threatened the regime in Lower Canada, Upper Canadian politics could also be bitter and acrimonious. And the clergy reserves were only one example. Our friend William Lyon Mackenzie, he of the fiery disposition so prone to annoying the colony's executive, had plenty more reasons why he was absolutely certain that Upper Canadians lived under what he thought of as a tyrannical government. And although he was more extreme than most, Mackenzie wasn't alone in holding these views. Some said you could tell William Lyon Mackenzie was a firebrand from the color of his red tangled hair. The only problem was the red hair wasn't actually his own, it was a wig. Mackenzie had actually gone bald early and wore the red wig as an affectation. But maybe that also said a lot about how he wanted to be perceived. For Mackenzie was a passionate idealist, convinced of his ideas, absolutely certain, perhaps to the point sometimes of being a bit unbalanced, of his convictions. In 1820, the small, wiry Scottish-born Mackenzie came to Canada on his own as a young man to start a new life to put aside his gambling debts, his youthful exuberances, and to start afresh. And he did just that. Although he tried and failed as a merchant, his move into journalism was more promising. He founded a paper called The Colonial Advocate in 1824. Mackenzie was a born storyteller. The paper overflowed with political news and plenty of opinion, but also funny stories and anecdotes. In these years, people would sit and read papers aloud to each other in public houses or in homes, gathered around a candle at night, and Mackenzie delivered wit and opinion in abundance. But the newspaper business was hard, and papers started up only to collapse after a few issues or a few years. In May of 1826, when Mackenzie was deep in debt, this might have been about to happen to him and the colonial advocate if it weren't for the stupidity of a gang of well-to-do thugs. These young men, sons of the family compact, and later prominent members of Upper Canada's elite, decided that the best way to treat a critic was to silence him. Dressed as, quote, Indians, they broke into the offices of Mackenzie's paper and decided that his printing press really ought to be taken down to Lake Ontario for a swim, something printing presses don't do particularly well. Although several magistrates witnessed the incident, the young hooligans faced no criminal charges. But Mackenzie had better luck with a civil suit where the indignant judge forced the men to pay a steep penalty. This kind of outrageous attack on the freedom of the press and speech just couldn't go unpunished. In a flash, the quote, types riot, as it became called, transformed Mackenzie into a symbol of freedom of the press and resistance against the corruption of the family compact. He ran for a seat in the assembly soon after and won. By the early 1830s, the mood for reform was in the air. South of the border, the Americans had recently elected a plain-spoken Democrat named Andrew Jackson to the presidency. Jackson symbolized a rough-and-tumble democratic ethos, speaking against big banks and special privilege. This was just the kind of thing to appeal to Mackenzie, who was angered by Upper Canada's own brand of special privilege, the family compact. Mackenzie visited the United States and in fact met Jackson and immediately became a fan. In Britain too, reform seemed imminent. In 1830 and 1831, 
raucous protest broke out across England as reformers demanded changes to the voting system. Elections to the English House of Commons were corrupted by what were called rotten boroughs. In these ridings, only a handful of voters could elect MPs, even while some other areas, especially the hugely populated new industrial centres like Manchester and Birmingham, contained huge numbers of people with hardly any representation in Parliament at all. A Whig ministry passed a reform bill in 1831 only to have it turned down by the House of Lords. Violent demonstrations erupted, and these were followed by the all-too-predictable violent crackdowns. The King and the Lords feared that revolution, like the one that had just toppled King Charles off the throne in France in July of 1830, would come for them too. Huge petition movements sprang up across the country to demand reform. Ultimately, this would lead to the Great Reform Bill of 1832, pushed on by Lord John Russell and another reformer, Lord Durham. Now, remember these two men, Durham and Russell, because they'll be back. The same spirit of reform gripped many in Upper Canada too, and William Lyon Mackenzie put himself in the forefront of reform in the summer of 1831. All through that summer, Mackenzie organized his own petitioning campaign that would, he hoped, finally bring about substantial reforms in Upper Canada. He directly modeled his own campaign on the one then being led by reformers in England. The petitions he gathered that summer listed grievances that were to be sent to England for redress by the imperial government. Reformers felt that they could get no justice in the family compact dominated local government, and they had plenty of accusations to make. They wanted local control of government within Upper Canada. That is, they wanted to wrest control away from the overwhelming influence of the family compact. Remember, those who sat on the Legislative Council held their positions essentially for life. Reformers also wanted an end to religious preferences for some denominations over others, something so obviously demonstrated in the clergy reserves issue. There were other demands as well, including that the East India Company lose its tea monopoly and a, a similar attack on the banking monopoly of the Bank of Upper Canada. But the gist of the message was the attack on the family compact, or as Mackenzie put it, that faction of disappointed state priests, pensioners, charlatans and tax consumers who currently corrupted the government of this otherwise promising young colony. Mackenzie was by no means the only reformer. There were Marshall Spring Bidwell and John Rolfe, who had made names for themselves fighting for the rights of American-born settlers. And there was the father-son combination of William Warren Baldwin and Robert Baldwin, with their idea for responsible government. And we're gonna talk a lot about that later on. But Mackenzie was, for the moment, at the forefront of the petitioning campaign and had become a potent symbol of the fight between reformers and the family compact. In the summer and autumn of 1831, Mackenzie and the reformers seemed to have the wind in their sails. And this annoyed those in the family compact who saw Mackenzie as nothing more than a troublemaker. The best way to deal with him, they thought, was to just expel him from the assembly. So that, as we saw, is exactly what they did. Yet even though Mackenzie promptly won re-election, this solved nothing. Mackenzie treated his victory as vindication, and so he republished the offending materials in his paper with the extra insults to show that he wasn't about to back down. But his opponents in the assembly weren't about to back down either, and so what did they do? Well, they expelled him again. Of course they did. 
At this point, you might think that most Upper Canadians would side with William Lyon Mackenzie, just as clearly many voters did in his own riding. After all, he was clearly on the side of democratic principles, freedom of the press, political rights, and against the corruption of a nepotistic ruling elite. But to see it only in this way would be to misunderstand the nature of the conflict and to misread the general feelings of Upper Canadians at the time. Many Upper Canadians wanted some reform, and they were dissatisfied with the narrow control by a faction of the family compact. But there were other factors at play in Upper Canadian politics, and the biggest one revolved around the issue of loyalty, loyalty to the British connection, that is. The soft underbelly of reform, and especially William Lyon Mackenzie's brand of reform, was the question of loyalty. Perhaps more than any other issue, loyalty was the touchstone of Upper Canadian politics. Were you loyal or disloyal? Were you in favour of the connection to Britain, or were you against it? Were you perhaps secretly an American sympathizer, a Republican in disguise, or worse yet, openly and avowedly a Republican? This is why so many in reform circles couched their reform in the language of loyalty. Even Mackenzie did this. After all, the inspiration for his petitioning movement came from Britain. He could justifiably claim to be part of a British tradition of political reform. But to many, William Lyon Mackenzie could also seem disloyal and too American. Loyalty mattered in part because the United States posed an existential threat to British North America, especially Upper Canada. Only a few years earlier, Americans had invaded Canada in the War of 1812, trying to pick off the British possession. The Americans were absolutely certain that the locals were desperate to be free of the British yoke. All that was needed was a nice little invasion. Much of the conflict in the War of 1812, that actually went from 1812 until 1814, but who's counting? Anyway, most of that conflict centered on Upper Canada. Men died at battles in the Niagara District and around Windsor. The Americans took over York, that is Toronto, only to have the Brits blow up their munitions to avoid having them captured. You didn't just forget this. The war ended in a stalemate, and a stalemate it remained in the 1820s and 1830s. The whole thing was made more complicated by the fact that many Upper Canadians had in fact once been American. In the first few decades of the colony's existence, the 1790s and early 1800s, Americans made up the vast majority of new immigrants. They came for cheap land and to settle in a territory not ravaged by, quote, Indian wars south of the border. But many loyalists and British-born Canadians always questioned their loyalty, especially after the American invasions from 1812 to 1814. In the 1820s, the politics of Upper Canada roiled over the issue of what was called the alien question. The question of what, if any, political rights these former Americans would now have in their new home. In the late 1820s, the imperial government pushed legislation onto the colony and supported by some reformers that forced the family compact to accept political rights for those Americans who had come to the colony before 1820. But the tensions lingered. And it was also tangled up in religious differences. Many Americans were of the dissenting sex, those who were against any state support for churches. Other denominations, Presbyterians, Catholics, even some British Methodists, wanted a compromise solution in which the clergy reserves could be used for a wider array of faiths, and of course themselves. And so the whole debate about the clergy reserves was a religious battle, 
but it was also a battle about nation and loyalty and whether someone, perhaps someone like Mackenzie, was just too American. In other words, many Upper Canadians could agree with some of what William Lyme Mackenzie argued, but not all of it. Or they might see him and other reformers as disloyal. So when the Assembly expelled him, and he was voted back in again, and then the Assembly expelled him again, it was in no way a sure thing that a majority of the people of Upper Canada would feel that he had been wronged, or even if they did, that their support for him on this one issue, the expulsion, would translate into support for his other causes. Reformers and loyalists fought out the expulsion issue in public meetings all through the winter of 1832. For reformers, William Lyon Mackenzie became a cause and a symbol. There may have been many who found him a little extreme, but the actions of his adversaries in the assembly were far worse. And so reformers across the colony called public meetings to express their displeasure. A call would go out in a paper or on a poster to meet at some public location like a town hall. But both sides would show up at the meeting, and then things would get interesting. They first fought over who would chair the meeting, because so much of the power to determine how the meeting would turn out depended on controlling the chair. Reformers complained that local officials would break rules to allow loyalists, supporters of the government, to be elected chair. If one side wasn't happy, and that was often the case, those who didn't have control of the chair of the meeting would evacuate en masse and find another location nearby to have their own meeting. Both meetings would then pass resolutions with petitions and signatures affixed, absolutely guaranteeing that these particular resolutions, for Mackenzie or for the government, represented the authentic voice of the electors of such and such an area. The Loyalists came out in force. If Mackenzie and reformers had taken the lead the year before, Loyalists were keen to show that they spoke for the people this time. They came with banners and flags and musical instruments. They formed an organization called the British Constitutional Society. Some churches also came on board to support the government, including the Catholic Church. Loyalists argued that the colony enjoyed good government that they were not inundated, as reformers claimed, with unjust taxes, and that justice was impartial. Most importantly, they saw Mackenzie and the reformers as malicious troublemakers. To loyalists, reformers like Mackenzie were unprincipled malcontents whose chief purpose was to stir up trouble. They came from the worst parts of society, with no stake in their communities. They were too American, or were nothing but was called a saddlebag faction. This, by the way, is a fascinating insult, a reference to the presence of so many American Methodists amongst the Reformers. In these years, itinerant Methodist preachers traveled from district to district, setting up tents and holding revivals to bring in the converts. An early 19th century Upper Canada was rife with gossip about the overly emotional and enthusiastic Methodists and the inappropriate things they got up to, allegedly, in their tents in the woods. Now, both sides resorted to violence but it does seem that the Loyalist forces were more happy to use their fists and even clubs to bash their way through a meeting. This was especially so when the Orange Order was involved. The Orange Order was a fraternal organization and an import from Ireland in the tumultuous Catholic-Protestant conflict in that country. Named after William of Orange, the Protestant King of England, who had triumphed over the Catholic King James in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, saving the United Kingdom and its crown for Protestantism, the Orange Order had only recently been established in Upper Canada. The Orange Order would come to be the shock troops of loyalism in Canadian politics, intimidating their opponents into submission 
and if that didn't work, resorting to fists and clubs to get the job done. On at least two occasions, Mackenzie only barely escaped from meetings with his life. At one meeting in Hamilton, he was lured out of his lodgings by a magistrate with links to the family compact, only to have this judge hand Mackenzie over to a gang of thugs to be beaten. The beating caused a sensation for obvious reasons, and when the magistrate was finally brought up on charges, he escaped with such a slight fine that reformers howled in indignation. By late winter, Mackenzie had essentially gone into hiding. Then in April 1832, he finally sailed for England. He would go to London, delivering the reform petitions in person. Maybe there, finally, reform could get some redress. In London, the British were none too pleased with events in Upper Canada. The Brits had other colonial worries to occupy them. They were mostly focused on pushing through what would be the Slavery Abolition Act, the act that would formally end slavery in the British Empire. And the question of how to do this without angering people on both sides of the issue made it an explosive issue. Couldn't the Upper Canadians just sort out their own problems and leave London to deal with more serious matters? Uh, well, no, apparently they couldn't. The reformist Whig ministry in Britain tried to appease Mackenzie, though only partly so. By the time he arrived in London, Mackenzie was asking that the Upper Canadian Parliament be dissolved and the governor be called back. Now, London would not agree to these drastic measures, but they did try to resolve some of his more practical complaints, disallowing some banking legislation that Mackenzie had complained about, for example. And so, Mackenzie had reason to feel like his trip abroad had achieved something. While he was in London, he attended the debate on the Great Reform Bill of 1832. Everything seemed to be coming together, reform in London and reform in Upper Canada. But it wasn't going to be. While Mackenzie was away making his case in London, his opponents in the Assembly back in Upper Canada expelled him yet again, this time in absentia. They really didn't want this guy in the Assembly. When news reached the British, they were furious. They sent a dispatch to Upper Canada insisting that the Assembly and the Executive treat Mackenzie fairly and allow him to take his seat. And when the Assembly balked at complying, the Governor was ordered to expel two prominent family compact figures from their official positions. If the Upper Canadian elite would not be reasonable, then the Ministry in London would show them that they were dispensable. But this only fueled more controversy in Upper Canada. The two men thus expelled decided that they would sail for London themselves. They had friends in high office too. Back and forth to London went the disgruntled colonials. It was a long trip to complain to mummy and daddy, but this was essentially the tactic of the spurned colonial politician in this era, to run to the British parents when they could not solve their own problems. Mackenzie had done it, and so too would the family compact. It didn't help that London was not consistent. Partway through 1833, the government in England changed. Out went the reforming Whigs, and in came the Tories. And with the Tories in London, back in came the Tories in Upper Canada. The Brits reappointed one of the expelled officials and rewarded the other with the chief justiceship of Newfoundland. And so William Lyon Mackenzie was back out of favour once again. And of course, the Assembly expelled him two more times, and he was re-elected two more times, before the governor finally issued an ultimatum which allowed Mackenzie to be sworn in. This was no way to run a colony, and certainly no way for Mackenzie and the reformers to get what they wanted. 
The expulsion crisis, though, was a pivotal moment. The two sides set up against each other with obvious animosity. And all the toing and froing back and forth to London, hoping for an answer, also seemed to have settled something for William Lyon Mackenzie. The answers were not going to be found across the ocean. The Republican Mackenzie, who had met and admired Andrew Jackson in the United States, made a symbolic and telling decision. In the aftermath of the crisis, Mackenzie changed the masthead of his newspaper. What had once been the colonial advocate, a paper of reform, but a loyal reform, would henceforth be called simply the advocate. Colonial was gone. Sometimes one word, or the deletion of one word, can say a lot. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, please do leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get you your podcasts. Uh, this will help others find us, and I, I really appreciate the support. Next week, we join up the stories of Lower Canada and Upper Canada and watch as tensions mount in the 1830s. In Upper Canada, a new and rather unexpected governor will transform the political culture in the colony. Meanwhile, in Lower Canada, the Patriot push their fight with the governor even further, sending resolutions to London, demanding change. When that change doesn't come, things are going to get interesting. 1867 and all that is created, written, narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Jessica Clement with the generous support of Trent Online and Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.